stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. And now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Welcome to the Graveyard Slot, where we talk about movies past their prime time. Here, we revisit old favorites with a fresh perspective to see if they deserve more hype or if they should stay buried. I'm Sarah. And I'm Sohini. And today, we're talking about the Jurassic Park franchise. The Jurassic Park franchise probably doesn't need much of an introduction. The movies basically, in their own way, imagine what would happen if dinosaurs existed in the world as we know it today. The first movie came out in 1993, and it centers around a theme park of genetically engineered dinosaurs and the chaos that ensues when a group of visitors get trapped inside. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, who also needs no introduction, but to name some of his notable features, there's Jaws, E.T., Schindler's List, and the Indiana Jones movies. The movie was written by Michael Crichton, who also actually wrote the Jurassic Park novel, and David Kep, whose filmography includes movies like the 2002 Spider-Man and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So the first Jurassic Park movie is both of our favorite movie, <laughs> and objectively, it's an incredibly well-crafted film. Unfortunately, it's grown <laughs> into a franchise without a single decent sequel. And we wanted to rewatch the two infamous follow-ups and figure out why that seems to be the case. It'll be difficult to find considerable merit in The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3, I think. <laughs> so we've got our work cut out for us. But I don't think either of us can resist an opportunity to talk about Jurassic Park in any capacity. <laughs> so let's see if this franchise truly is meant for the graveyard slot. Yeah, this is our ulterior motive. Basically, we just wanted to watch Jurassic Park. But for the sake of the podcast, we put ourselves through the sequels <laughs> as well. So... We might as well talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So the later movies are obviously pretty well known as pretty shitty movies. <laughs> Don't mince any words there. <laughs> I was actually surprised to find that some people did like the second movie, which in my opinion is the worst. It's almost unwatchable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But full disclosure, when I was looking through the reviews, I did find some positive ones, but the review that I wanted to discuss today is one of the more negative ones because I think it articulates the problem with the second movie quite well. The review is from Movie Metropolis and it reads, Just watching dinosaurs attacking and killing stupid people is not enough. <laughs> This brings up two main points. The first thing is that it lacks the depth that we found in the first movie because it's not just about dinosaurs attacking people. There's a lot of really interesting themes explored through the story and the characters and it just feels like they completely omitted that in the sequels. And the second thing is the stupid people. <laughs> the character development is so ineffective. I feel like the movies, both the second and the third, don't do enough to make us care about the characters. For sure. The later movies, they barely made an effort. <laughs> yeah, it was all about the dinosaurs. And that's unfortunately just not enough. The review I found for the third movie is from the Austin Chronicle and it reads when a cell phone gag is the most exciting or inventive thing in a big summer dinosaur movie you have to wonder if the species might not be ready for extinction 
this review really tickled me and I think it's accurate enough because I did find the cell phone gag in the third movie quite entertaining and I remember thinking when that gag happened I just realized this is the first time I'm enjoying this movie <laughs> meanwhile in the first movie with every turn it was exciting and it was new and it was inventive and it keeps you at the edge of your seat but the later ones do nothing like that it's all pretty flat so I think this review hits the nail on the head. Obviously, we're very critical because we fucking love Jurassic Park. It's the first movie. <laughs> My personal experience with this movie is that I just kind of grew up watching it. I absolutely loved it. I still watch it all the time. Like, it never gets old for me. Yeah, same. I had a very similar experience to yours. And I also saw the sequels a couple of times. As I've thought more and more about why I like the first movie so much, I've realized that the sequels really do not hold up in comparison. I actually don't have any memory of watching the sequels before this, so watching the sequels this time around was truly a fresh experience and a very disappointing one at that. Not that I was expecting much. <laughs> So we're doing things a little different here today because obviously we're talking about an entire franchise or at least the original franchise. So we'll actually be going through Jurassic Park, the first movie, chronologically, act by act, and discussing what it is that works about those plot points and what makes the first movie special and how the later movies fail to pull off the same thing. So the first Jurassic Park movie, I think, has a great opening. While it does start off with a dinosaur, we never actually see the dinosaur. We open on a dinosaur being transported into Jurassic Park. And of course, things start to go wrong. And one of the workers gets injured and, I guess, eaten by the dinosaur. This triggers the plot for us because now... The owner of Jurassic Park, John Hammond, basically needs two experts to sign off on the park and its safety before he can open to the public. What I love about this opening is that, like you said, we don't even see that much of the dinosaur. And we see, obviously, the guy dying, but we don't see anything actually graphic. And in the second movie, for example, which is The Lost World, we follow a team of people on a different island that's apparently a side B for Jurassic Park that Hammond never bothered to tell anyone about. <laughs> and in that movie, the opening is also kind of this cliched thriller horror opening where somebody gets hurt by dinosaurs except that we immediately see the dinosaurs front and center which is a complete opposite to how Jurassic Park opens. The threat is very apparent and in your face. Yeah and not that the first movie hit the fact that it's about dinosaurs but even just from that opening scene it's clear that in the sequel there's nothing subtle about what they're doing and they don't even build suspense well at all. There's just something about an unseen danger right? It activates your imagination imagination. In the first movie, we see the rustling leaves and we hear the growling and that indication is just enough. So in Jurassic Park, in this first act, we get our introduction to the main characters, Alan Grant and Ellie Sadler, who are paleontologists. We learn about their background and their jobs and the fact that they care about dinosaurs. And we see Dr. Grant telling a kid about the dangers of raptors. 
they build this intrigue with raptors that will come in later. And also Dr. Grant's, let's say, intolerance for children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anytime this movie talks about a particular kind of dinosaur, it comes up again later in a meaningful way. So with the raptors, Alan describes their hunting methods and this helps build the suspense later on when they're actually getting hunted by raptors because we already know what's going to happen. Whereas the other movies, the introduction of the dinosaurs feels not as well thought through. For instance, in The Lost World, we have the scene where this group of people, they're hunting the dinosaurs and we get this sort of really quick explanation about one or two of the dinosaurs and it just feels really last minute and just kind of thrown in there without much care. Obviously, it's not an educational film. We're not here to learn about the dinosaurs, but it helps to know something about them to later serve the plot. You're right. They do a great job of writing in the suspense in this movie. And I love especially the fact that we don't get it spelled out for us right before it happens. They give us all this information slowly and at the beginning of the movie. And then we see it come to fruition as the movie goes on. And the later ones, whenever they introduce a kind of dinosaur, it immediately, quote unquote, pays off. You immediately see that dinosaur show up and kill someone and then they're gone. And that's it. Instead of it being woven through the movie and making it into part of the narrative, that way of writing makes this movie so strong. And that exact same thing is why the later ones are so weak. Yes, exactly. Another character we get here is John Hammond, who we've mentioned. He shows up at the site in a helicopter and you immediately see his lack of care for their work because his helicopter immediately fucks up the dig. So out of touch. Exactly. He invites the paleontologist to be his expert for Jurassic Park. And you see his wealth and his arrogance and he's just throwing money around and saying, if you do this, we'll fund your dig for three years. And they go with him. Two other characters of note are Dr. Malcolm, who they meet on the way to the island, who is a mathematician and the lawyer who is trying to profit off of Jurassic Park. Now, we learn about these characters one by one at a pretty steady pace, and they put a lot of care into why these characters are there, what they're going to add to the story, what they represent in this conversation about the theme that Jurassic Park is exploring. And I think that's lacking in the later movies. In the second movie, The Lost World, we get like 50 different characters on that fucking <laughs> island. The quote-unquote bad guys are the guys from InGen, a group of hunters who are trying to capture the dinosaurs on that island. And the good guys consist of around seven people and then they merge and it just becomes this jumble of people running around the island. The third movie actually does a better job than the second one. It's called Jurassic Park 3 and it's the set of parents who are trying to find their kid who got lost on the dinosaur island. And the third one, they take more time with it. They show us Alan back home. They show the public perception of him. They show his relationship with Ellie and we see him at a dig with Billy, his protege, and we get that introduction one by one. However, the rest of his team which is 
the parents and the hired employees of theirs to find their kid. We get that group at once and barely any kind of introduction. I don't know any of them. I don't know anything beyond surface level personas and I don't care about them and I don't know why they're there. It's like a survival movie and they're always just running from dinosaurs and we never get anything beyond the very basics, if that. For example, in the second movie, all we get about Hammond's nephew's motivations is that he wants money and that's so one note and in the third movie the parents would be sympathetic if they hadn't completely tricked alan into going with them yeah also once we find out what the parents actual motivations are the problem is they stay the exact same people that they were before and they do so many stupid shit and they're just so not well written so the beginning of this movie ends with them finally seeing the dinosaurs and it's wonderful. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Yes, this is like a grand reveal. The first time we get to see a dinosaur on screen and it works wonderfully because it's like we are discovering the dinosaurs alongside Alan and Ellie and we sense their love for these creatures that they've been studying because they've built up to it it just pays off really well you're absolutely right the fact that we haven't seen that much of the dinosaurs if any really makes this special for both the characters and the audience our awe is reflected in them and a big part of this movie is also the score i mean yes. i don't think there's much more we can say but i think it's worth it to mention that the score helps a lot in this scene we also see each of the characters reason behind their awe obviously alan and ellie are paleontologists and this is beyond their imagination to actually see dinosaurs in the flesh. Hammond is, you know, full of pride and the fact that he made this happen. He quote-unquote created this. And we see that the lawyer just kind of sees bags and bags and bags of money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We see from pretty early on that Malcolm is pretty wary of this idea because Alan and Ellie even, it takes them a bit to realize the dangers of this entire thing, but Malcolm is immediately there. His mind is going a mile a minute going, oh no, this is bad. This is really, really bad. <laughs> It's a really great point. And the characters' differing and sometimes conflicting motivations are clear from the beginning. And that sets us up for some really interesting dynamics. And even though we get 10 times as many characters in the second movie, it doesn't really bring anything to the table because they all have a hive mindset. Exactly. And the protagonists, even though they have some conflicting interests with the antagonists, the ultimate aim is to just escape from the island. There's nothing to unpack. In the first movie, they went into this with different goals in mind and different interests. And in the later movies, they do kind of try this because we have people with different jobs and different backgrounds, but they're all there for the same reason and they want to get the same thing. They just want to get the hell out of there. And obviously, eventually, that is what our heroes in the first movie want. But as we go through the movie, the bulk of it isn't actually 
the monsters going after them. The bulk of it is a conversation about their different ideologies. And moving forward, you see that each of their actions is fueled by their different perspective and their different ideologies. Meanwhile, in the later movies, it's not really about those big ideas that we're exploring in the first movie. It's just about the surface level action and that's it. Exactly. Even when everything totally unravels and the survival part of it starts, it also serves a purpose in the movie's overall message. But it feels like the sequels don't have a message. It's just... A horror movie from start to finish. This second act begins with them exploring the park. They go and see how they've been breeding these dinosaurs in the lab and they see a dinosaur egg hatching and this is one of the first times that Malcolm voices his issue with his entire venture and the first time he says life uh, finds a way. <laughs> I love that you included the uh. <laughs> you have to, it's part of the quote. And, you know, this is the first time we see this idea of capitalism versus nature. And the first time we see the hesitation from our two main characters, Alan and Ellie, is when they realize that what they've bred are raptors. And of course, we know Alan is a little bit of a security cat when it comes to raptors. <laughs> <laughs> Probably justified. Yeah, but all we get is him saying raptors and the look on his face and that's it. At this point, we know what that means. And we immediately understand why this is no longer a fun park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's almost like the dinosaurs are distinct characters. That's the thing. They are. And they're not treated as such by the later movies. The point of this movie is that they're living beings. It's an ecosystem. And they don't put any thought into that idea at all in the later movies. They don't care about dinosaurs at all. We love dinosaurs in this movie. The later ones completely shit on them. <laughs> yeah. The dinosaurs are just monsters without any logic behind their actions. Actions. They just kind of stomp around and cause havoc. We don't know why they're doing what they are and we don't know why they're acting that way. We don't know why they're attacking. There are some instances when we do get that, but not enough. There's a scene in the third movie. Basically, they were trying to escape the island, but the plane runs into this T-Rex and basically crashes. And then there's this other dinosaur that's chasing them. And all of a sudden, the T-Rex shows up again and starts fighting fighting with the other dinosaur and they're just fighting for no reason and it just makes no sense whereas in the first movie the dinosaurs interact in ways that make a lot of sense like a predator hunting prey or there will be conflict for a very apparent reason yeah the dinosaurs in the later movies have devolved into brainless tools for the story to move forward they just show up whenever we need the characters to start running to a different setting <laughs> yes so we see a dinosaur get fed. They drop this cow into the enclosure and we see it get eaten. But again, like you said, we actually don't see it at all. We see the rustling of the plants and that is it. Yeah, we see the cow being lowered in on this harness. And at the end of the scene, the harness comes back up all mangled. 
we don't even need to see the quote-unquote monster to realize how powerful and dangerous it is. And this is the kind of subtlety and restraint that the later movies do not show at all. Every time someone is hurt, we see it front and center on screen. It's really gory and like, it's fine if that's what the movie is about, but that's the point. Jurassic Park is not about the violence and the gore. It's about the conversation around this idea this hubris of creating life and we get a lot of that in this dinner scene in this act yes the characters have sat down for lunch and they're discussing these core issues at the heart of this movie this is the scene where it becomes really apparent that this movie is not just about dinosaurs eating people it's driven by questions about creation pride and the extent of human beings power and control a lot of things intertwining in this discussion for sure and jurassic park is entirely about this discussion and they are telling it through this survival story on this island the point is this discussion and the rest of it the dinosaurs and the violence and whatnot it's an extrapolation of this discussion. It's seeing those ideas play out. So we get all of our main people in this lunch and the lawyer is immediately jumping into talking about merchandise and making money. And speaking of which, I love the fact that they are eating on plates branded with <laughs> the Jurassic Park logo. He's already done it. He does claim that that's not what it's for. He says it's not just for the rich. However, he is still focused on the customers. He's still thinking more about the spectacle. It's the fact that he's created something. It's about his pride. And he even says everyone has the right to enjoy these animals. For him, these animals are his property. He created them even though that's not what he did. Dinosaurs have been there before we existed. And, well, they won't be there after. Because <laughs> but he did not breathe life into them. But that's how he sees it. Even when the dinosaur egg is hatching, he's talking about him being a pseudo-parent to this raptor. And he sees himself as this pioneer of this corner of science and this god to these dinosaurs. And that's the arrogance in him. And Dr. Malcolm does say, genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a kid. He says, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others had done and you took the next step. And I think that lays out, you know, the problem with Jurassic Park, obviously, but also the problem with the sequels. They didn't require any discipline to make those bombastic movies. They just followed what had already been done by the first Jurassic Park. They saw what they did and took the next step. They had this potential pot of gold and they didn't wield it with any restraint. They just had fun with it like a kid. Like they interpreted the first movie like kids would in that it's a movie about dinosaurs eating people and made that movie instead of what Jurassic Park is actually about. That's a great application of those lines to the situation with the sequels. There are further lines that I think still applies. He says, you accomplished something as fast as you could before you even knew what you had. You patented it, you packaged it, and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. Now you're selling it. Oh my god. Yeah, it's about 
greed. It's about money. It's about making the most money out of this thing that's proven to be successful. Actually, while I was researching the sequels, I did read that initially Michael Crichton had not planned for a sequel to the first book. But when the book and the movie turned out to be so successful, he was apparently pressured by fans into writing a sequel that was then adapted into the movie. And it seems like they misjudged the reasons that we had been so compelled by the story of Jurassic Park. They think the part that people love the most is the dinosaurs killing people, and then they made the movies entirely about that. There's also a really great conversation between Ellie and Hammond where she says, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem and therefore how could you ever assume that you can control it? You have plants in this building that are poisonous. You picked them because they looked good. And I think that perfectly encapsulates the problem with the dinosaurs in the later movies because, again, there's no logic to why those dinosaurs are doing what they are. They just look good in the moment. Yeah, there's no logic to why it's that dinosaur. They just show up and it's like the grander, the better. It'll be a bigger spectacle for the audience. The bigger and more menacing they look, the more thrilling it will be. Whereas in the first movie, it's very deliberate that it's this kind of dinosaur when the characters are resting and they're taking in everything that's happened there are these gentle giants in the background and there's a balance they underscore the plot in a beautiful way and that's what makes them feel like they are real characters that are a part of the storyline yeah and it is a whole complete ecosystem there are all these kind of dinosaurs and the problem is that these humans are barging in on that and that's why they become prey to these carnivores whereas in the later ones they're cherry picking different kinds of dinosaurs and dropping them into this island for no reason at all just what looks good on screen and in fact as far as i can remember i don't think in either the second or the third movie we get a dinosaur that doesn't attack the humans, they're all just turned into these monsters out to get the characters. For sure. Just to go back into the non-meta version of this conversation, I think this talk between, you know, Hammond and all the experts is a lot like the discussion around taming wild animals because Hammond thinks they can control them, domesticate them, you know, use them to his liking for his purposes to make money off of. And, you know, it's exactly what the conversation would be around the treatment of wild animals, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of the things they bring up are very applicable to life today. And I think that's what makes this movie timeless as well. They're using dinosaurs as a symbol in this case, but the issues they're bringing up are very much applicable to real life. Exactly. The fact that we get to know each of these characters really well, or at least well enough, where you immediately understand why they take the stance that they do, why the issues that they bring up are the ones that they do. It's just so well done. It's so well written. Even the fact that Ellie brings up something related to the plants, which I think is like her speciality, is just so in character. They're definitely not being used as the author's mouthpiece. The things they say are inherent to their characters. Yeah, whereas 
for example, the third movie, all we get from the characters mainly is hysterical screaming. <laughs> yeah. Nothing about the things they say, nothing about the way they act has any purpose behind it. I think it's clear that this lunch scene is my favorite. But this is also where we get the iconic line <laughs> from Dr. Malcolm. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And this is my question. Do you think there could have been any type of sequel for Jurassic Park that wouldn't be basically negating the whole point of the first Jurassic Park? With the point they made about the first Jurassic Park, you can't then go ahead and milk this franchise for what it's worth. You can't then just make money from it without having humility. That is a good question. I think there could have been. The movie brings up such interesting themes that I don't think you could ever completely exhaust. I, I think it also would have been really interesting to explore the characters' perspectives shifting after this whole experience, as long as they were respectful about it. My answer is yeah, I think they could have. My main thought is just they should have kept in mind the vision of the movie, of the story, the point that they were trying to make. One of the only things they could have done is show the aftermath for the characters and the closest we ever get to that is one line literally a single <laughs> line in the third movie where some kid makes an observation about alan that before the whole jurassic park fiasco happened alan used to love dinosaurs and it seems like afterwards he's a little disillusioned by the whole thing and they don't do it well even in that movie because before that he was so like giving lectures and he still at a dig and it's still fine that he does all of that but then show that he's no longer as passionate as he used to be all we see is that he has to now deal with these morons asking him questions about Jurassic Park which is understandably not a thing he wants to talk about a very traumatic part of his past and that makes sense but that doesn't mean that his disillusion so if a sequel of Jurassic Park was about how Alan for example how his perspective on dinosaurs and his career and even maybe like the world has changed then that would have been interesting and that would have been on track with the ideas that we were exploring in the first movie another reason i think the sequels don't work is that we just keep seeing people make the same mistakes it makes for you know a dull story <laughs> we already ha had that in the first movie and they did it better and they did it smarter and it wasn't people making stupid mistakes it's conflicts arising naturally from a bunch of different things falling into place and in later movies the issues that come up are entirely manufactured by the stupidity of these characters yeah and actually i think there's two very similar examples in the second movie and the third movie. So in the second movie, there's this instance where the group from InGen capture this T-Rex baby, but our protagonists, which includes Sarah, who is like a scientist, and Nick, who is like a filmographer, they rescue the T-Rex baby and carry it back to their van. And they know how dangerous the T-Rex can be. They still take its baby. And this obviously prompts the T-Rex to attack. And in the third movie, we also get the scene where 
Billy steals some velociraptor eggs and once again you're an expert in this field like you should know that they're gonna come after you it's like the characters forget everything they know and do these really stupid things just to spur on the action exactly it's just for the sake of it but after this lunch we get our introduction to the kids they are Hamlet's grandchildren and they take their time and do a really good job of building the relationship between the kids and Alan and Ellie. We get to know each of their distinct personalities and how they interact with Alan. And at this point, we are almost like an hour in and no action has happened at all. We are only building the story. The later movies, I was shocked when about 15-20 minutes in, we're already seeing dinosaurs eating people. And I was so confused because in the first movie, only the second half is a survival movie. But I really, really love that the first half we are just exploring the park, getting to know the dinosaurs, getting to know their behavioral patterns, and most importantly, getting to know the characters and building their relationships with each other. And that's where all of the conflicts that show up later on stem from. One of the relationships that we also get introduced to is between Dennis Nedry and Hammond. Nedry is one of the technicians at the park. He handles all the security and he's kind of the guy at the computer, you know. And he has a pretty volatile relationship with Hammond, who is his stepfather, but Hammond has always been pretty dismissive of him. And that's what led him to betraying, you know, the company and his stepfather. And he is our villain for this movie. He is carrying out corporate espionage, I guess. Yeah, it's basically been tasked with stealing dinosaur embryos. But while all of this is happening and he's starting his plan, the kids and Alan and, you know, the whole gang is actually in Jurassic Park automated cars to go and explore the park. At this point, Nedry has shut down the whole security system so that he can steal these embryos and he's on his way out of the park and because the power is out the car stop working and the electric fences surrounding the dinosaur enclosures also stop working this is where for the first time we see one of the dangerous dinosaurs appear on screen and its entrance is you know one of the most iconic things ever we see ripples across the cup of water i think this is such a great technique to slowly build the tension we hear the dinosaur's footsteps in the distance we see the cup of water it's like engaging all of the senses before the dinosaur actually appears and of course the main thing, we see the characters' reactions as they look around in fear. And actually, it's somewhere during this scene, before the dinosaur appears, that Alan and Ian, who are in the same car together, have a little bit of a funny exchange. <laughs> <laughs> They're both denying being scared. And the reason I bring it up is because I think it's so great to have their two contrasting personalities together. We actually get Ian as the protagonist in the second movie and Alan as the protagonist again in the third movie. And for some reason, I can't put my finger on exactly what it is. I think I much prefer Alan as our protagonist because there was something about Ian that sort of fell flat in the second movie. I wasn't quite engaging with him as our main character. 
Yeah, I agree. The problem is that Ian works best when he's playing off of other characters. He's actually a big chunk of the moral driving force of this first movie. So it's not like he's just there to make comedic quips or asides. No, he's actually a really relevant main character that contributes a lot to the conversation. The thing that makes him interesting here is that he's debating these ideas with other people. Whereas in the second movie, without other main characters for him to play off of and to match his wits, there's no one he's talking with, he's having a conversation with, he's debating with. He's no longer this intellectual that's got a different perspective from another intellectual. He's just the guy that we know is right. And the other people are fighting him for stupid reasons and they're not listening to him and they don't understand where he's coming from. The thing is like in this movie, everyone has different opinions, but aside from the clear quote-unquote bad guys, you know, aside from Hammond and the lawyer and whatnot, say like Alan and Ian, for example, they're both in the right. They're just coming at it from different perspectives. You're absolutely right. And there's also such a disconnect between him and the characters surrounding him. Especially Sarah, because she knows what happened to Ian and she calls it stories. She says something along the lines of, you've been telling me all these stories over the years. And it's almost like she's making light of the traumatic experiences that he went through. It's definitely what she's doing. It's not just that they have different perspectives or stances on the same thing. They're not even having the same conversation. Yeah, exactly. When he's trying to say, you know, this place is dangerous, we have to leave, Sarah is acting like he is mansplaining to her yeah. or something. <laughs> her attitude towards Ian is as if he's pulling a whole like overprotective, controlling boyfriend kind of thing. And all he wants is for you to not die, Sarah. I just, she is so unsympathetic. I really, really, really disliked her character. It always bugs me when I see these really unhealthy relationships and stories and they're like, you can tell that the story is so not self-aware. <laughs> and I guess we're supposed to think of Sarah as this empowered boss lady kind of thing. And I'm like, no, she's just disrespectful and dumb. <laughs> I think the third movie is a little more bearable just because people do seem to try to listen to him. They acknowledge that he is an expert and, you know, there are so many points where they disregard what he says, but there are a very few points where they listen to him. And by they, I mean like everyone but Amanda. <laughs> yes. They wrote her in such a weird way. Literally, there's a scene where she gets hit by a corpse and obviously, understandably, she would be surprised and horrified. She runs away. And you think that's all? No, she keeps running for like fucking miles <laughs> for no reason. It was like so weird. Literally, everything she does is illogical and frustrating not only because it's like, a, oh, stupid people doing stupid things. Just like, how did anyone write like a human being acting this way. It's so weird. It's like some alien decided to write this woman. I was so confused. The only really compelling relationship in the third movie, I think, is Alan's relationship with his protege, Billy. But it kind of crumbles towards the end there <laughs> once Billy steals the eggs. I think it's not completely bullshit 
the whole, oh, he was just tempted by the idea that these eggs can fund their dig for however many more years. But they made it into a surprise that was pretty obvious, but they try to hide it. I would have actually been more interested if we got to know Billy better. So like we have an emotional connection to him and we sympathize with him. And then we see him trying to resist the temptation, but he reaches for it. The relationship has a solid enough foundation, I think. It's just that if they took it even farther, it would have been really interesting. Yeah, and they would have had such an interesting dynamic as well because here we have this fresh-faced paleontologist who still has his passion for dinosaurs compared to... Yeah, and then like contrast that with his disillusionment. But unfortunately, all we get is Amanda screaming for two hours. Miles and miles and miles. (laughs) Yeah. Compared to Ellie, the other female characters in this franchise, like Sarah and Amanda, it's like, I don't know, they forgot how to write good female characters. From movie to movie, it's like they keep getting increasingly diluted until they're just there as dino food. Remember guys, the way you write a female character is you write a human being and they happen to be female. (laughs) One of my biggest problems with the later movies as well is how much of the dinosaurs you see and how much you see of them attacking humans and all that gore. But the best contrast, I think, is with this T-Rex scene in the rain in the first movie because this is basically the most you ever see of the T-Rex. It's this big hulking dinosaur in the dark, in the rain. You don't see the details and the whole view of the dinosaurs, right? They're hidden by the rain and the darkness and they seem more menacing that way. And every time you get a close-up look, it's always partial. It's just their eye or it's just their snout or it's just their leg or like that shot of the rearview mirror that says, what is it? Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Yes, something to that effect. You only see bits and pieces of the T-Rex from that rearview mirror. And even later on with the raptors. I mean, there are like very brief wide shots of them. But when you're actually getting a close-up, it's always, always, always a partial view. And I think that works so well. And this is also driven by the direction. Because every time we get a shot of the dinosaurs, it's always based on the perspective of our characters. The scale and the view is relative to our characters. So even when we see the dinosaurs for the first time, we see the bottom half to emphasize how big they are and all we see is our characters and their reactions and the bits of the dinosaurs that are at eye level with them. And the same thing happens moving forward, whereas later on in the franchise, they always want to get the whole dinosaur in. You always see them front and center. Maybe that's why some people think that's good, but I think it ruins the suspense. It ruins the menacing aspect to these animals. It's it's like more a focus on how monstrous and big they are than the human element, which is the emotional upheaval (laughs) that you get from seeing those dinosaurs. The point is the human emotion, not the big bombastic creatures. That's a great point. When I think back to the T-Rex scene in the first movie, there's this great shot of the T-Rex as it's investigating the car that the kids are hiding in. 
you see it lean down and its eye appears in the window and because Lex has a lit torch in her hand, you see its pupil dilate. It just goes to show that you don't need to show these gigantic creatures wholly on screen to strike fear in audiences. If anything, it's the opposite. It's more about the suggestion of the size. Exactly. Comparing this to a similar scene in the third movie where the characters are trapped in the remnants of their plane and they're sort of being pushed around by this gigantic dinosaur. With the first movie, you get this buildup where it's like between them is this layer of the car and you know any second the dinosaur is going to pierce through that layer. Whereas with the other scene, it just breaks that tension because we're constantly switching to an outside perspective. Yes, that's exactly and that T-Rex scene in the first movie, what we see isn't the dinosaur wreaking havoc. What we see is the reaction from each of the characters. It's always their faces. Whereas in the scene in the third movie, we literally don't even get to see their facial expressions because it's just chaos. It's just a piece of airplane that's rolling around with a bunch of people in it. It's not about the human emotions. It's about seeing quote-unquote action on screen. That's the problem. That's why you don't connect with that scene as well. So because chaos has broken out in front of the T-Rex enclosure, Ellie and one of the employees at the park, Robert, are going out to save them. But, you know, everyone's run away to safety and the only person they find is Ian Malcolm. In the meantime, we see Nedry trying to escape with the dinosaur embryos that he stole. And I don't think he can even see through the windscreen because it's raining so much. His car gets stuck in the mud and so he has to get out and he encounters this dinosaur. And this is bringing up some of the themes that were introduced in the earlier lunch scene. When it seems like the dinosaur can't really do much damage, he's totally dismissive. He taunts the dinosaur. Yeah, and he ends up getting pretty viciously attacked and killed by these dinosaurs that he underestimated. It's a really great scene. You know, it's all of these things falling into place. It's his scheme that he's been planning this whole time. It's the fact that there's a sudden storm coming in. It's that it's, you know, really dark and rainy and he's really careless. It's just so many things falling into place. And the fact that he doesn't respect the dinosaurs. Exactly. Most important part, I might say. This scene is also a significant contrast with similar scenes in the later movies because we don't actually see any graphic moments. What we do see is the dinosaur spraying him with some sort of venom and this dinosaur is actually also introduced earlier on when our group is on their tour and in the background there's this automated narration that talks about this dinosaur and says that it's recently been discovered to be a dangerous predator because it shoots its prey with venom. Yes, and the moment this dinosaur shoots its venom, you know that means Nedry's gone. 
that's what it does. You don't need to show the dinosaur actually eating him. All you need to know is the dinosaur making the first move. And because you've already had that information beforehand, you know that's it. It gives us the space to infer and to imagine, which is not afforded to us in the sequels. Yeah, it doesn't talk down to its audience at all. There's a similar character in the second movie, one of the hunters, and he sees these tiny dinosaurs and assumes that they're harmless and even though they don't bother him he electrocutes one of them and they flock together and attack him and there's this horrible <laughs> sequence where we can see the dinosaurs pecking at him and it's really horrible and unnecessary it would have been satisfying to see a character like that get their comeuppance, just the way Nedry does, but it's just done so much better in the first movie. The suggestion of it is enough. <laughs> Even just pay attention to the way they use the dinosaurs in those two scenes. In this one, we find out their behaviors, the way they hunt their prey, the way they use their venom. That's information that we were given way earlier in the movie and brought up again here, and you see it all play out and you let the audience make that connection on their own based on the information already provided earlier. Whereas this one, it's just a straightforward, oh yeah, they just eat him, I guess. Those dinosaurs. They might as well have been knives that the story is wielding. Yeah, and Nedry's death brings up that issue of respecting nature as well. It's got a purpose behind it, whereas in the second movie, it's cheap. Yeah, there's no character motivation behind why he's so cruel to the dinosaurs in the first place. With Nedry, we see a blatant disrespect for the work that he does, and this is evident in the fact that he's stealing these embryos for money as well. And to get back at his stepdad. Yeah, he makes it into a personal vendetta and is using these dinosaurs as a tool. Whereas there are no nuances to the hunter's character without any sort of explanation. He's just cruel to the dinosaurs. Yeah, it's just like these are the bad guys. That's why they act this way. This also results in a lot of unnecessary violence against the dinosaurs. In the first movie, it's always about the characters trying to save themselves and not hurt the dinosaurs. Like, that's not their aim. But I noticed in the second movie, even the good guys, there's this part where Kelly, who is Ian's daughter, who snuck onto this trip with them, she does this gymnastics move and kicks this velociraptor onto this spike and it impales the raptor. And it's just so violent and hard to watch. It's almost like it's less about them escaping the dinosaurs and more like trying to hurt them and I didn't enjoy that at all. I I just didn't see the point. Same. Again, the later movies aren't at all about loving dinosaurs. It's about fighting with them. Yeah, it's really like the filmmakers also see these dinosaurs as monsters and the villains of the story, whereas it's just wild animals behaving like wild animals. Exactly. So at this point, Alan and the kids have been trying to escape from the T-Rex and it has pushed the car that they were hiding in into a tree and so this is actually a really suspenseful scene because the kid is stuck in the car and the car is about to you know fall out of the tree and alan has to save him and 
so many of the suspenseful scenes in this movie is actually not even to do with the dinosaurs and their like mindless cruelty. It's actually the situations that these people find themselves in and how to survive those. And it's because of different things happening and coming to a head. It's things that we've built previously that's resulting in this situation. And it feels more natural rather than the conflicts in the other movies which feel really contrived. Yeah, they happen for no reason. They just happen for the sake of it. Yeah, it seems very random where a random dinosaur will show up so our characters can run to a different setting. Or even worse, the people in the movie will do something that's totally out of character and makes no sense just so that we can move the story forward and once again this is one of the factors that makes it so hard to like and root for any of the characters in the movie Sarah is supposed to be a scientist and she knows that they're supposed to be there to observe and not interfere. But in the first scene we see her, she is right up close to this group of dinosaurs and she even reaches out to touch the baby dinosaur, which is why they get riled up. And it's just so that we can have dinosaurs start attacking humans as quickly as possible. The movies basically sacrifice character in the interest of of action scenes and moving the plot along. Whereas in the first movie, everything they do makes sense and everything even helps build those characters further and make them more interesting. Throughout the movie, we actually see Alan, who's been a little bit wary around the kids, become closer to them and form a bond with them. And it just makes the story all the more compelling because it's not just them getting chased by dinosaurs. Yeah, everything that happens is a cause and effect and you can trace out why something happens happens all throughout the movie. Yeah, and there are different conflicts because the characters have these very clear objectives that they're trying to achieve in each scene. It's not just each character's objective in every scene is get away from the closest dinosaur. They have objectives aside from run, it's a T-Rex. <laughs> yeah. Once they've escaped the car in the tree, they sleep off the night in a different tree. <laughs> <laughs> And they meet some nice dinosaurs as well. <laughs> it's a nice contrast because it's a moment of peace. Yeah, and it's a bonding moment between Alan and the kids. But so this third act ends with a conversation between Hammond and Ellie back in the resort. Hammond talks a bit about his past, how the point of this whole park is that he wanted to build something that wasn't an illusion. He claims that his aim is not devoid of merit. What I get from his ramblings is that what he's looking for most is glory. It's back to that idea of him playing God, of him having control of his creations. And even after all of this, what he says to Ellie is, we were over-dependent on automation. I I can see that now next time everything's correctable. Meanwhile, people are dying out there. And he even goes so far as to say creation is an act of sheer will. Again, it's his hubris. He's the kind of person that's like so rich and so powerful that he truly has come to believe that it's possible for him to play God. The way this scene frames Hammond for me is a delusional and kind of pathetic 
man. The first shot we get of him alone in this cafeteria that's supposed to be bustling with guests is he's sitting there eating the ice cream that's melting and we see him past this shot of shelves upon shelves of Jurassic Park merchandise. The dream that he had is that this would be a huge success among the public and it's turned out to be the very opposite. Even though there's a level of arrogance in his perspective, I think it's less that he is so blinded by power and more just delusion. The fact that he's a little bit deluded and naive is hinted at throughout the movie. The way he arrives at the dig and causes chaos without even really realizing it because he's too busy popping the champagne already. The fact that he repeats that line about no expenses spared. He also sways Alan and Ellie into coming to the park with money. It seems like he thinks he can do anything with money, but Ellie is the one who brings him back to earth a little bit, makes him confront the fact that this is people's lives and it's not about the airy-fairy ideals that he's got in his head. Yeah, it's not just his playground to play around in. Going back to that first scene of his introduction at the dig, he even has this line where he says, you know, I've always had this gift. I know that you're special or something to that effect. He's like, you guys are the people, you're the experts. And I think it's pretty real to his kind of character where he's been able to do so many things in his life because of money to the point where things that have nothing to do with money, (laughs) things like intuition and talent, he thinks he's excelled in those aspects as well just because he's been able to do everything else but he's been able to do those things because of money this has nothing to do with money but it's that kind of thinking that I think is often present in this kind of character and you know we see aspects of that in this conversation but my favorite exchange actually in this scene is when Ellie says that this is all an illusion and Hammond still insists that when we have control and Ellie cuts him off she says you've never had control that is the illusion it's the idea that he can ever have control of these living beings of nature that he can ever create life. Yeah, that was a great point about him conflating what he can do with money and things that you can't buy with money. And it also might be reflected in the way he treats the dinosaurs. Yes, he's always had this control with people. The thing is, dinosaurs aren't controllable. They don't care that you're rich, dude. Yeah, and one thing it does really well is that it gives more layers to Hammond's character. It humanizes him. Yeah, and once again, this level of nuance is something that we're missing in the other characters, especially the antagonists in the later movies. They're all just villains for the sake of being villains. Exactly. And with Hammond, it's not like they were ever trying to convince us that what he's doing is actually right. That he's actually morally upright or anything. (laughs) Yeah, everything that happens in the movie is proof otherwise. Yeah. It's just that he is a real person person he's a three-dimensional character his character allows for the story to explore these wants and desires human desires that we all have and you know these delusions that we may develop 
you know, it's just, it's storytelling. These characters have purpose. They explore nuances. They explore themes and ideas. And that's what a story is supposed to do. And the later ones are just, they're nothing. We've said in this podcast, we like fun movies. Not everything has to be like super deep or whatever. But the first Jurassic Park is a prime example of a really well-written story that isn't shallow, that explores all of these big ideas and themes. And it's also a popcorn movie, but it's a good one. The least you can do is tell a good story and just have characters that we can root for. That's the bare minimum. So we start act four the next morning and Alan and the kids are feeding the herbivores and they find a nest of eggs that are already hatched. The dinosaurs are breeding. Life found a way. (laughs) (laughs) We also get that gratuitous shot of shirtless Jeff Goldblum for like a full 30 seconds while the rest of the characters are chatting in the background. All I'm going to say is it's refreshing to have a man fulfill that role of injured character who's sitting around. Yeah. In this scene, their objective is to shut down the system because they need to reboot it after, you know, Nedry fucked it all up. But they need to turn the circuit breakers back on while Alan and the kids... Yeah, they're trying to find their way back to the main office. There's this great scene where they see a herd of dinosaurs running and this is actually one of the only times where we see the dinosaurs fighting each other. The T-Rex shows up and eats some of the dinosaurs but in this scene it's part of the life cycle of this ecosystem. It's part of the food chain. There's a reason that this is happening. It's not just two big dinosaurs fighting each other for no reason the way we get in the later movies. And again, there's a reason that they even introduce this in the first place because it comes into play later on in the movie. It happens again. They're just using the natural life cycle. They're using nature as the driving force. And it's so well done. I just love it so much. Like, see, you can do a dinosaur eating another in the right way. While this is happening, Ellie and Robert go to the shed to turn the breakers back on. However... As this is happening, Alan and the kids are trying to climb an electric fence that is currently off. And it's this amazing suspenseful scene where Alan and one of the kids are already on the ground and Tim is still on the fence and he's too scared to let go. And we see one by one Ellie turning on the electricity and it's just so good. You see, this is like two different groups, two different objectives happening and that's where the suspense is coming from. There's nothing to do with dinosaurs even. And they collide in such a perfect way to build the suspenseful scene. Yeah, and it's still integral to their survival. Their ultimate aim is still to escape the dinosaur island. Exactly. It's like building blocks. And like the park allows for that. The fact that we've gotten to know the park, the fact that we know about the labs and the tours and the cars and the security system. The fact that we spent 
an hour getting to know this park and these characters and their abilities so that we can have scenes like this where you don't have to have it all re-explained or explained for the first time or whatever. It's so good. Yes, it's so well thought through and the settings in the first movie are really well developed as well. Like the way the park is organized and the way everything operates, you can tell that they thought it all through and there's you can trace a very clear path that the characters are taking. Whereas in the second and third movie, it's just them running around on a wild path through the island. And it's pretty much indistinguishable to the viewer. There are moments of interest, I suppose. In the third movie, at one point, they end up in this giant birdcage, which is actually pretty grand and majestic. And the reveal of the bars of the cage through the fog is pretty well done. Speaking of settings, though, what do you think about the decision to move things into the city in the second movie? <laughs> Disappointed silence. I mean, I wish they hadn't. <laughs> Same. It's very Godzilla or King Kong of them to do. The part that especially struck me as, oh, this is bad, <laughs> is when the dinosaur is stomping around a suburban neighborhood. They should have just kept it by the docks. This dinosaur is suddenly already like in the suburbs. It's his first time in San Diego. I'm <laughs> sure he wants to look around the sites a little. Maybe he's trying to hitch a ride to Disneyland. <laughs> you know the suburban parents are always taking their kids to Disneyland. <laughs> Yeah, I also find it absolutely absurd and laughable that they decided to build up this whole plot and bring it to a boiling point in San Diego. Maybe there's something there about the contrast between this hulking monster and the quaint suburban neighborhood, but it didn't fit. It could have been something about underlining how much we shouldn't have brought back dinosaurs because it's not a time for them anymore. Like they don't fit into human environments and civilizations, but you know, they don't really do anything with that. It's just a monster stomping around, causing destruction. It doesn't evoke anything, any interesting themes or issues. They basically did what Powerpuff Girls does in every episode with a monster rampaging around the city, except Powerpuff Girls did it better. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this fourth act ends with two casualties. Mr. Arnold, who never gets back from the shed. And his death is also really interesting because Ellie just finds his dismembered arm. And you know, it's quite graphic but I don't think it's a gratuitous overdone gory shot. I think it was actually pretty smart and well done. It shows the violence without actually showing the death on screen and I think in the next movies we don't actually ever get a death off screen. There are points when the actual moment of it is suggested but we still see the violence. Yeah this one it makes you understand the violence without actually showing it. And our second casualty is Robert. He gets attacked by a raptor and they actually do show the raptor attacking him but it's literally entirely blocked by a plant you can see their shapes like behind the plant but you can't see anything it's like the closest they ever get to showing that senseless violence even then it still shows more restraint than the deaths we get in the later movies 
And this scene is also the moment where we get a payoff for that scene in the very beginning when Alan was talking about the way velociraptors hunt. It's just something that we see coming because we had that scene in the beginning. It lets the viewers connect the dots and it doesn't catch us off guard or feel like we're being cheated just because they wanted to add something to add tension or wanted to surprise us. Everything falls into place the way we expect it to, yet it's still suspenseful and satisfying. Everything feels earned. Yes. So the last act starts off with the kids and Alan are back in the resort and Alan and Ellie are reunited. However, the raptors find the kids and they hide out in the kitchen and we get this whole scene of the raptor hunting the kids in the kitchen. And this is also when we learn that the raptors have learned how to open doors. They, you know, learn these human behaviors. Yeah, the whole scene is so well done in the way they use the space with the raptors jumping on top of the counters and the kids crawling along the floor and the way they navigate around the space is really well done one of the things this movie does really well is the setting because there's such a variety of places that the characters find themselves in and it makes for a more interesting story rather than just running around a forest it's more engaging it's more dynamic and it just hit me when you said it like the setting really does affect these movies so much because the later ones it's all so vague and it's just like the wilderness on an island and the closest we get is like you said the birdcage and we also get this abandoned lab in the third movie and that was the closest I got to like oh this is kind of interesting also I actually do like that scene where Amanda thought she was looking at a half formed dinosaur in one of the tubes and it's actually a dinosaur behind the tube that's hunting them. It sort of hints at the question that was the dinosaur pretending to trick Amanda because there's also that scene where the velociraptors basically attack a member of their party and then use him as a trap because they know the others will try to help him. So it's like they're getting even smarter and it hints at something really interesting, but of course the movie doesn't explore it any further. Yeah, exactly. It's like this whole thing with the raptors in the first movie, where they become smarter and they learn how to open doors. Like, we never get that kind of... I guess, character development with the dinosaurs in the later movies. Because like I said, they're just tools for the story to move forward. They're brainless. They're no longer these living beings. And the closest we get is that whole thing at the very beginning of the movie, how Alan is researching this idea that raptors have a way to communicate with each other vocally. And that comes into play later on in the movie. And that is their saving grace. That's the one thing they set up. Exactly. That's the one thing that is weaved throughout the movie and has a solid foundation and, you know, makes logical sense and is about loving dinosaurs. Yeah. So we get the final conflict of this movie as the characters are trying to escape. And there's this great shot actually of this raptor. There's this projection of DNA sequences projected onto the raptor. With one shot, it's raising the fact that this is a genetically engineered creature and you know the implications of what Hammond has done. You know it's really interesting too looking at it from our present perspective now that we know you know 
dinosaurs have feathers and blah blah blah. I mean, the real answer is that back then we didn't know that and that's why the dinosaurs look the way they do. However, we do know that the dinosaur DNAs are spliced with frog DNA. Imagine if the reason they look that way is because they are spliced with frog DNA and that's actually what Hammond has created and he's failed in making dinosaurs the way they used to be and making them look the way they actually did. Yeah, you end up with these sort of hybrid monsters that didn't ever really exist. They're just a product of his imagination. And that's an illusion too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's true. You can't create dinosaurs. He failed in creating dinosaurs in the very literal sense. Yes, he did, right? <laughs> but in actuality, he didn't. He created what he thought were dinosaurs. It's very dependent on his imagination and his flawed perspective and his outdated information. And that shot, it's a visual reminder that these creatures have been genetically engineered by humans. And what is happening now is an aftermath of what they did. These creatures are not supposed to exist. They were naturally eradicated millions of years ago. So the fact that they exist now and are killing people is a direct result of what humans have done, of what Hammond did. In a way, it's like an answer to his delusions. Even though the movie paints him as kind of pathetic, it doesn't condone what he did. No, yeah, exactly. But our gang escape through the vent. However, when they get to the lobby, they're cornered by multiple raptors. It seems like there's no way out, except right when they're about to get attacked, a T-Rex comes to their rescue. And I mean, it's not really rescuing them. It's just that they are natural enemies. And like they did earlier on, they get involved in their own fight, which allows the characters to escape. It's great because like we've already established this food chain between them so it makes sense that the t-rex would want to prey on these raptors and it just so happens that it allows for our protagonists to escape yes the setting i think is amazing in this grand lobby with these t-rex skeletons the contrast of these skeletons with the real thing in the room <laughs> which is not a sight you're ever supposed to see and there's this shot at the end of the scene where the dinosaur is roaring and the jurassic park banner is falling across its body and it's like hammond's delusions crumbling in the face of the real thing it's just a fantastic climax scene truly it is the shot of the movie so they get on the helicopter and finally leave the island. The final shot is Alan looking out at this flock of birds, which is the closest we have to dinosaurs these days. And, you know, there was this, a line earlier in the movie where Alan says, never gonna look at birds the same again, are you? And it's a really lovely ending. It's just like reminding us the might that these animals used to have. And it's a great way of showing us that the characters will probably never be the same again as well. Exactly. The fact that every time Alan looks at a bird now, he's not just going to think of dinosaurs, he's going to think of the dinosaurs that nearly ate him. <laughs> I mean, it has to be a truly traumatizing experience. And the aftermath of this would have been a great thing to explore in the later movies, but 
they just sort of chose to ignore everything that these characters have been through. And even if they didn't, the other characters surrounding them in the sequels did. Yeah. And they just decide to do the same movie again anyway. So this is such a lovely ending. (sighs) (laughs) And I think the core issue with the sequels is encapsulated by the fact that the third movie literally ends with a shot of flying pterodactyls. And it's like a callback to this final shot of the first movie. That shows the pure incomprehension of the point of the movie and the point of the shot. The fact that they ended with that shot and they think they were doing something. They think that it was like, what, an uplifting moment? When I saw that shot, I was furious. If any scene could illustrate the pure devolution of this franchise i think this scene would be it exactly and you know what even if we set that aside and we're just talking about like what is actually happening in the third movie they're staring out of the helicopter window and seeing pterodactyls in the distance and smiling this is the moment where you go oh shit we didn't lock up the birdcage (laughs) even within the movie it does not make a lick of sense san diego knows how to deal with dinosaurs (laughs) they'll help everyone else out every suburban mom now has like a crossbow (laughs) (laughs) anyway so absolutely no merit to the later movies (laughs) jumping straight in there i'm just so mad bury that shit six feet under no ghosts no nothing in absurd conclusion we notice that all of the young girls in this movie namely lex and kelly from the second movie are the most technologically advanced while their adult counterparts are really inept for some reason gender equality reasons So our conclusion is that Jurassic Park single-handedly promoted girls in STEM. (laughs) That's the best thing these sequels might be said to do. So I think it's clear that I completely hate the sequels and I love the first one. And I just really think the sequels aren't only unworthy of being sequels to Jurassic Park and just straight up bad movies. They're straight up disrespectful to Jurassic Park. Like, I know I feel strongly about this because of how much I love this movie. But they should be ashamed of what they did to the good name of Jurassic Park. It makes me deeply, deeply angry. And no, I would not recommend these movies to anyone. Sometimes I would say, you know, just watch it for fun. Just put it in the background. But I think it's hard to get through these movies as a lover of Jurassic Park, the first movie. I think you can do that and have fun and just watch it for what it is if you're not that invested in Jurassic Park, the first movie. But otherwise, I think it would be hard to keep your composure (laughs) as you get through the later movies. You should just watch the first movie three times. (laughs) I actually disagree with you. (gasps) Hear me out. I think that's the end of the graveyard (laughs) plot. Thanks, guys. I don't just think these movies would be difficult to watch if you're a lover of Jurassic Park. I think these movies would be difficult to watch if you're a lover of movies in general. Oh, I mean, that's true too, yes. (laughs) We were worrying about whether we were being hypocrites. And yes, on one hand, loving movies that aren't universally critically acclaimed and maybe they don't have deep messages, but we're encouraging people to give them a chance anyway just because they're fun. 
But, you know, we're also out here criticizing these two sequels, even though they might just be fun movies, we're criticizing them for not having the same depth and messages as the first movie. But here's what I think. These movies fail on multiple levels. First of all, compared to the first movie, they don't hold even 0.01% of the thought and the care that the first movie had. And secondly, if we were just to see these two as standalones and see them as just purely fun movies, they fail even on that level. They have cardboard cutout stock characters, none of whose motivations make any sense. They never give us any reasons to care about them. They have these contrived plot points. The only thing that might keep you watching is the fact that there's these dinosaurs on screen. But if you want to watch dinosaurs on screen and also have creative storylines and compelling characters, just watch the first movie. <laughs> I understand there are people who enjoy these movies and that's fine, but to me, they don't have any aspects of good storytelling whatsoever. And both as a fan of Jurassic Park and as a fan of just good stories, I do not recommend these movies. It's not even entertaining. You know, <laughs> it's just so flat. The only way it could be is if you're just laughing at the absurdity of it. That's the only way you could be entertained. Well, that's been quite the discussion. And if I'm being honest, it just scrapes the surface of what I've got to say about Jurassic Park. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> we might have a sequel episode <laughs> that we can't promise will be as good as this first one. <laughs> oh no, that one's gonna suck. That one's gonna trot all over the message <laughs> Next time, we'll be discussing Jumanji. If you have any thoughts to share on the movie, send them in at graveyard underscore slot on Twitter and Instagram or email us at thegraveyardslot at gmail.com so we can share on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode of The Graveyard Slot. <laughs>